Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everyone. David Fortney, and welcome to another edition of the DC Insider Employer Update. I'm really looking forward to this discussion today, and we've got Bert and Nita back. Bert, how are you? Fine, David. Good to be here. Hi, Nita. Hi, Bert and David. I'm very excited because we're going to be talking about my University of North Carolina today. We sure are. And I just want to give a shout out before we pivot into that. Bert, you did a great job leading that podcast, that last podcast on the independent contractor regulation. I thought that you and John and Savannah were really super and just so appreciate that. It's a really informative podcast. So I appreciate it. Thank you much. It was an interesting topic. I'm glad we could pull it off. Well, keeping things diverse, as we would say, since we are going to talk about diversity, we all sat and paid very close attention to the U.S. Supreme Court's oral arguments that were just held on probably the two most significant cases that the court's going to decide this term. And that involves the role of affirmative action, particularly in the context of student admissions. Let me just give a brief backdrop, because what I want to do with Nita and Bert, let's unpack what we heard and importantly, what this means for employers. Because boy, I got to tell you, this is really significant. I thought yesterday was a blockbuster day at the court. Let's start with who the parties are. These cases were brought by a group called the Students for Fair Admissions, and that's led by this longtime opponent of affirmative action, Edward Bloom. And what Mr. Bloom is trying to do is challenge these race conscious admissions practices, and he focused on the Harvard University, a private school, and the University of North Carolina, public school. And he seeks to overturn literally decades of Supreme Court precedents supporting the use of race as a factor in admissions for higher education. The landmark ruling in this, of course, was in the Bakke decision, University of California versus Bakke, way back in 1978. So this is pretty longstanding law, And that has been repeatedly, although fairly narrowly and with a lot of legal zigs and zags, affirmed by the courts throughout the years. That brings us really up to what the court was trying to sort out, which is the current controlling decision is a case called Grutter, Grutter versus Bollinger, a decision that was uh, the lead decision in that recognized that you can use race, but it has to be part of holistic reviews in selecting students. That really is one of the most important cases. It goes back to 2003. And the point of that case for me is that colleges consider race as part of a narrowly tailored, holistic review of applicants so that race is not the deciding factor. And the way that that works under the Constitution is that the court determined, and this was the controversial part and why it's been reviewed so frequently, is that diversity in education is what is called a compelling state interest. And only because it is can you justify the use of racial preferences in higher education. Now, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote that case back in 03, and she acknowledged two things that this court dealt with to quite a long degree. One is 
that having a racial preference is a constitutional burden. But she expected that it was kind of self-curing and just kind of tossed out that she anticipated that in 25 years, we probably would have no longer a need to have race-conscious preferences in college selections. Nita, how did we get to where we are? Well, that's a very interesting story. These are two different cases. They're being decided differently. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute because Justice Jackson has recused herself from the Harvard case. The Harvard case, which was also filed by Mr. Bloom, is based on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, while the case against the University of North Carolina is based on the 14th Amendment because it is a state university. The Harvard case had been tried and Harvard won both in the district court as well as in the First Circuit Court of Appeals. They won both of those cases. North Carolina had just won in the district court and was in the process of appealing to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals when the Supreme Court pulled that case up to try them both together, to hear them both together, based on the fact they have an option under their rules to pull cases like this to be heard by the court. We have this really interesting setup of these cases, the private school, the UNC, the public school that the Supreme Court has now set the table. We go to this oral argument that's scheduled certainly with much anticipation. And I will tell you, the oral argument was, I'll say, spirited and and very extended. We were talking among ourselves. The oral argument in these two cases lasted five and a half hours, five and a half hours. Now, to put into context, an oral argument typically is allocated 30 minutes per side. So that would typically be 60 minutes at most for a case and sometimes less. One thing I want to note about the oral argument, I have not spent a lot of time. I think the two of you have been heard more of these than I have. But there was a difference in the formatting, David and Bert, that I think made this a very interesting oral argument. Normally, Justice Thomas doesn't jump in to their kind of free-for-all they used to have. And now the Chief Justice, as I understand it, has a regular roll call. And Thomas was the first questioner in each of the oral arguments. Well, that might be because the uh, first arguer was one of his former clerks. In fact, that was true of both cases, that the lead advocate for uh, the students for whatever, SFAA, I think is their abbreviation, they were both clerks of, of Justice Thomas. The thing that I found interesting about the argument just in general is that it was almost as if uh, the sides were talking past each other. The advocates for the schools and for the government, the Solicitor General participated, were all talking about the consequences of this, uh, of having a different regimen than we have now, the impact on society, the pipeline to leadership, the impact on the service academies and on the army. Whereas the, certainly the majority of the justices never commented on it and stuck solely to constitutional issues. If I may say this kind of exactly like happened during the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision, where the advocates were talking about consequences and the justices were talking about constitutional regimens. One thing that I think that was interesting, Bert, building on that, about the sides sort of talking past each other, was how the conservative justices really seem to have their talking points well in a row. And you're right, the advocates were handpicked for this assignment. Two former 
Justice Thomas Clerks advocating on behalf of the petitioners seeking to overturn affirmative action. The former Solicitor General, the chief lawyer for the government, Seth Waxman, representing Harvard, and the Solicitor General herself advocating a position which, by the way, changed during this administration to support the use of affirmative action, whereas the Trump administration had opposed these practices. So the government, elections have consequences. The position of the government changed in these consequences. But let's talk a little bit about kind of what those positions were, what we heard, because this, I think, is where we really start to get some insight into what the justices are likely to rule when we hear a decision. I'd be glad to pick that one up, David. Uh, Generally, the six, let's say, conservative judges expressed uh, doubts from the very beginning about affirmative action, about diversity, and about using race in any context. And the advocate for UNC, for the SSFA in the UNC case, his first statement was, diversity is not a compelling interest. And Justice Thomas jumped right in after that, not even skipping a beat, and started a discussion with, well, what is diversity? And how do you know you've achieved it? Questioning the very basis upon which Grutter is rooted. They followed that almost immediately with, what is the educational benefit that you're deriving from diversity? So you have the two pillars upon which Grutter is based being challenged by the court five minutes into the argument. And finally, the next point that uh, Justice Thomas raised that was picked up throughout the next five hours really is, when does the program end? If you don't know what it is, if you can't tell me how you've achieved it, to assess diversity, that means you have to keep doing it. And is there an end to this constitutional burden? So, Bert, what it was really interesting, I thought, and David, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this, is how ill-prepared the advocates for the universities were for this question about what is diversity and what was the educational benefit. Unfortunately, I felt like the Solicitor General of the state of North Carolina seemed especially either unable or unwilling to articulate that. Right, because the petitioners, that is the representatives that brought these claims, their claims fairly simple. That that is that there are a group of student applicants, Asian students, that are being subjected to higher requirements and being disproportionately affected in order to facilitate the admission of other students, primarily African-American, and that therefore the race of Asians and to some degree whites is being used and resulting in these racial claims. That is the heart of the case. And that is what the whole question is. And you're right, they seem to be caught flat-footed. I thought another issue that surfaced in there that caught me by surprise that I hadn't thought was that big a deal was this focus on Grutter. Bird introduced Grutter a little bit ago. That's the controlling case that's out there. And Justice O'Connor had said, this will be in place, she sort of threw out 25 years. And I don't think anyone really viewed that as a material part of the holding. It was just, we would call it dictum. It's just kind of part of what was out there. But the justices became transfixed with Don't you think that 25 years is about up? Can we just let this expire? Do we have to keep it going for the full 25 years? They seem to read it as a much more substantive requirement. And that caught me by surprise. I do think that one reason they might be trying to do that is they may be concerned about blowback 
that I don't think the court anticipated the blowback from the prior Roe versus Wade, although my view is that they're less likely to get blowback on this decision based on the fact that three-fourths of Americans don't think race or gender should be used in deciding who gets into college. I thought that one of the more compelling points, and this picks up on some points that Bert has introduced, the concept of when is race used? Is race ever appropriate to use? And he made some very basic points. Listen, Supreme Court, race is wrong in a number of other very important settings in our society, using race as a determining factor. When we select jurors, you can't use race. When we determine voting rights, you can't determine those rights based on race. And his point was, therefore, shouldn't we have the same rules of the road that govern how we admit students to universities? That had a common sense appeal, I thought, to many. I think it's important, though, also, Justice Jackson has had an immediate, I think, impression on the court because she comes from a very different background. And now the first thing that she asked in the UNC case, she did not sit in on the Harvard case. In the UNC case, she said, OK, so you're saying that we can't use race. If that's true, what happens if someone writes an essay? about their experience in a white school being an African-American or their experience being proud of their heritage as a Mexican-American. So that was, I thought, a very interesting, and it will be tricky because you know that those students will be writing about their experiences as they move forward to try to get into these very select schools. One of the points that Justice Jackson made, I thought, with real force was noting that Everybody admitted that the review process had numerous factors. I think she cited 40 factors. And she was saying, try to explain this to me. Universities can use 40 factors in selections, and only one, race, is the one you can't use. So everyone else gets a plus sign except the people who need it most. And that will cause equal justice and equal selection processes to suffer more than any other part of this case. I think the other thing that was raised, and I think, David, uh, you have some thoughts about this as well, is the Solicitor General made the point that the military and the military academies need to have diversity and how strongly the leadership in the military feels that they have to have a diverse candidate. It sounded to me, and I defer to you on this, that Roberts might be willing to not rule on the academies at this point. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Justice Kagan, kind of what employers always think of as, you know, our pipeline. We have to have people in the pipeline and who graduates from universities are pipelines for the workforce. And to maintain and develop a diverse workforce, we have to have diverse student body. That's sort of the theory. And it's one that the business community, certainly in their amicus briefs, subscribed to heavily, as did the defense agencies. The military said, look, having diverse leaders is critical in order for us to maintain defense. And the chief justice seemed to pick up on that point because, frankly, most of the conservative judges didn't seem to get traction with many. But the chief justice, Chief Justice Roberts, said, yeah, with the military, sort of mused out loud, maybe we could have a carve out for that. Maybe that's a special situation involving national defense. I thought that was very interesting. And that may be telling. I just don't think that they're willing to bend the Constitution that way so that these universities are in and those universities are out. Because what about VMI and what about other military and other Coast Guard Academy? 
I just don't think that this court is willing to go that far. What do you think, Nita? I think that we're going to end up with a muddled decision that's going to make it easier for people to sue universities for not being admitted and harder for universities to make decisions except on basic scores. Let's just unpack a little bit. So what does this mean for employers? Employers are sitting there hearing this. Most employers either have affirmative action because they're federal contractors, they're heavily engaged in DEI programs and or under the auspices of ESG programs, really focused on amping up the diversity of their workforces. Well, I think part of it, David, depends on the decision itself. My view is that we're highly likely that affirmative action in student admission is going to be ended and that the constitutional basis is going to be that an undefined diversity in support of an undefined educational benefit cannot be a compelling state interest. That's going to wipe it out at the constitutional level. So it's going to make employers try extra hard to find some niche through that constitutional wall that I think this court is going to build, and it's going to be a real challenge. One of the things is that, you know, we do have some time. Typically, the court does not render these decisions, particularly the ones that are the toughest cases. And this appears to be one of the most challenging cases they have on the docket this term. They typically render these decisions at the end of the term, which is not until June of next year, which feels like a long way off. But I think that we can certainly anticipate that this will be issued in the spring, early summer of 2023. So we're not going to fully know the answer to all this until then. One of the interesting things about all this, too, though, is I think that there's going to be more controversy to the extent that employers try to use diversity to make their, you know, within their organizations. But I think there's going to be less blowback, as we've talked about before. Well, you know, among the many amici, uh, that's to say friends of the courts who filed briefs, the business community filed dozens of briefs, the most major companies in the United States, all of which strongly supported affirmative action, not only in colleges, but for their own hiring and for their own purposes, and how those companies that so strongly supported affirmative action are going to be able to bring concepts of inclusion and diversity into their businesses in the face of what I think is going to be a pretty difficult Supreme Court ruling is going to be a challenge for them and for people like us who help them. I think that's right. And finally, I think that for federal contractors, and many of our listeners are federal contractors, they, of course, do have affirmative action obligations. However, those obligations do not, they don't today, and they never were supposed to have included decisions based on race. In other words, you cannot have a quota system, you can't have requirements like that. So there is a way conceptually that these student admission programs could be knocked back, but that affirmative action, which is focusing on the pipeline, focusing on whether you do have diverse workforce, but not making decisions based on race, could still be sustained. And I think that question and how we can navigate that is what employers are really going to be looking out for. That's what's critical for employers, I think. I think you're 100% right. And I think affirmative action, as it was originally imagined, which was to search wider, look harder, bring people in, train, mentor, support. That's how you build your pipeline without race-conscious preferences. 
Correct. So I think there's room. I don't think employers should be down in the chops about this. I think uh, many of the diversity programs, the well-conceived and well-executed diversity programs should be fine. But I do think that this case is going to result in a pushback on affirmative action as it has evolved in certain student admissions. And that will have some blowback on the workplace for sure. All right. Well, we're really run perhaps a little bit long, but I think we've had a great discussion and it warrants it. Like I said, the court spent five and a half hours discussing these points. So bringing the flavor of that and and some of these competing (laughs) flavors to bear is challenging. And and Bert and Nita, as usual, another fabulous discussion. Everyone out there, we appreciate you listening to the podcast. If you aren't a subscriber, please do subscribe. And Bert and Nita, thank you so much as always. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.